Welcome to RCSD Thinks with your host, Kyle and Dean, where we talk about the thinking classroom and other mathematical best practices. I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast originated on Treaty 4 territory, traditional unceded lands of the Nahiawak, Nakaway, and Nakoda, homeland of the Métis, Lakota, and Dakota. All right, we're uh, really excited to get started here today. Dean and I are welcoming uh, a friend from our neighbors in Prairie Valley School Division. Um, Sarah Hogneset is joining us. Uh, she teaches, you know, not next door, but just outside of uh, Regina here. So we're excited to welcome her to the podcast. Uh, Sarah, do you mind just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do, where you teach, all those kind of things? Yeah, absolutely. First, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, been looking very forward to it. Uh, so, yeah, I teach uh, grade seven. Uh, well, I teach grade six and seven French immersion at uh, Cal White City School. So just right outside of Regina with the Prairie Valley School Division. Um, I've been teaching there for about five years um, and I am brand new to think. Well, not brand new, but I'm newer to thinking classrooms in the past year or so. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's great. And I mean, you already mentioned thinking classrooms. That's what we're here to talk about. Um, how'd you get started on thinking classrooms? Well, I actually, it's a funny story. I, I sat down with you, Kyle, during uh, a bout of distance learning, maybe a year and a half ago. Uh and I was thinking about math and I told you that I had a great idea for what I wanted to do in my math class the following year. And you're like, that's great. Let's talk about it. But I also have something else I want to share with you that I think you're going to really like. And I was like, well, I think I have a great idea. So I think you're probably wrong. Um, <laughs> but, uh, then we sat down and started chatting about math and you had talked about thinking classrooms and immediately I was hooked. I started thinking, man, this, this sounds like the answer to a lot of the things that I think about and the challenges I have as a math teacher. And then I got the book and I started reading the book and within the first... I don't know, five pages. I was like, yep, these are all the things that I notice. And these are all the things that I would really like to be able to do as a, as a math teacher. So um, I think I read the book in like three days and now I've read it a couple of, I've read sections of it again, but um, yeah, it was instantly hooked and we were in a bout of distance learning. And so I thought really don't know if I should start this right off the bat during distance learning. And it was the first thing I did when I got back was just um, put up those vertical non-permanent surfaces and give it a go. And it was awesome. Perfect. So just to go on with that, how is it going so far? What are some of the things you've noticed, uh, you know, from your classes and your students and even yourself as a teacher uh, from implementing the thinking classroom uh, ideas in your classroom? It's going great. I... I feel like I am becoming the math teacher that I always wanted to be. And I feel like I'm seeing my math students be the kinds of students that they want themselves to be. And that's been a really interesting change. It has required me to re to look at my role as a math teacher in a different kind of way. Um, and that's been really neat and really challenging for me. Um, uh Mostly, I have to get out of my students' way sometimes, or I have to stop being as helpful and let them let them come to things and let them sort of sort it out. And that can be really hard as a teacher because all we want to do is help kids. Um, and so when we see a kid struggling or we see a group struggling, um, it's really easy to be like, oh, here's how you solve that. Um, but over the course of experimenting, I've learned that it's not very helpful when I do that. It's much more helpful when they kind of get themselves into this knot and then untie the knot themselves. 
Yeah, it's like, it's, are you helping them? Or are you enabling them? Or are they just waiting for you to do the work, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah and that, that really reminds me of Dan Meyer, who said, just be less helpful. That's kind of the, the best thing you can do as a math teacher. And I remember hearing that when I was in, in my undergrad to become a teacher and all those things. And I didn't really know what it meant and didn't really have an avenue to really do it effectively until we came across this thinking classroom practice practices. So that's pretty profound. So what seems to be working really well for your students so far, Sarah, like you're trying to get out of their way, but why are you getting out of their way? What's working so well for them? Well, I, I've watched my students over the course of, so it, this has been my first full year of a thinking classroom with a group of students and the, it's been really interesting to watch them become thinkers. So our very first couple of weeks, uh, in our math class, things were pretty challenging. I think the number one thing that students did was turn around from their whiteboards, look at me and feel frustrated, um, and be like, when are you going to teach us? And I was like, well, this is me teaching you uh, kind of thing. But over the course of them working through tasks and working through challenges together, they have started to like the, the, the things they can think about is, is, is phenomenal. Um, so I would say that switching the expert in the room has been really helpful. I'm no longer the, I'm no longer the expert in the tasks per se. Um, I can help them by asking them interesting questions about it or keep thinking questions. But um, so I found that tasks are really interesting. Tasks are really helpful. Um, and also collaboration is huge. Uh, just the dynamics in my classroom are so different, I think, because every morning they come here and they collaborate together and they start to see each other's value in a very different way, you know, that, uh, so that's uh, been a really neat thing and a really positive thing. Um, and then also just the standing part of it is I think really helpful too. So they're, they're up and they're moving. And it's the first thing we do every morning is we sit, we talk about math and we're standing and whatnot. And I think that honestly, behaviorally, I think that's like a really important thing because it kind of gets kids awake and gets them ready to, ready to learn um by learning which is kind of cool yeah i, I think cool. if i remember correctly when we talked to megan lane a teacher in our division sarah she said the same thing it changed her classroom management dynamic right the kids were um up and moving and it just made the rest of the day smoother so that was a really interesting interesting takeaway that we're seeing in your classroom too mm -hmm. yeah. No, it's interesting because I teach high school kids and sometimes, you know, I get a little pushback uh, first thing in the morning. These kids are like, what? You want me to stand up? Like, come on, buddy. And so it's a little bit interesting, too. It's something, you know, that that I found a little bit of a challenge. But speaking of challenges, what's some things that uh, maybe haven't worked quite the way you'd like to or you'd like to improve upon, uh, you know, from your practice so far? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, specifically, I think that the... For me, the consolidation and note-taking parts are the hardest parts. Um, I haven't mastered how to help my students master their own notes. That has been a really big challenge. Um, I've tried scaffolding their notes. I've tried modeling their notes. But I have found when I've modeled notes, then they just copy my notes and they don't mean anything. But then if I don't model the notes, then sometimes they write nothing. And then I say, well, make sure you grab your uh, notes for your future forgetful self for your tests. And they're like, well, I wrote nothing. Well, they are not very helpful then. Um, so that has been a bit of a challenge. Um, and even the consolidation time, I think I haven't figured out why it's a challenge either, but um, 
even though they spent a lot of time being like, when are you going to teach me these things? Like, this is the time I'm going to teach you the things <laughs> um, in that consolidating from the bottom area. I do find that the engagement is, is more difficult um, at that time than it is during the tasks. So I don't know. How do those things go for you? Well, for me personally, I've written the same thing down because I, <laughs> I've been doing that. And then one thing that really goes with that for me is the assessment piece. Like, you know, I, I hear so many good things and I hearing the kids meeting outcomes in the curriculum, uh, left, right and center. But I haven't figured out that well to take that and translate that into the mark, right? Especially in a high school situation, you know, kids are like, is this for marks kind of a thing? So that's something I've been working with. But yeah, you know, I've done things where I've shown them how to use a Freyer model, for example, and say, like, here, you put your main concept here. And, you know, and as we consolidate, you'll have examples and non-examples and definitions. And you should do that for your future forgetful self. But if I don't uh, explicitly tell them to write it down, they, they they just they're like they they wait like they're it's such a mind shift for them to like oh I'm responsible for writing down my own notes wasn't that your job as the teacher going back to enabling them a little bit they, these kids don't know how to learn for themselves sometimes or they don't they know they have really good ideas but they don't realize like yeah that's exactly what you write down like sometimes there's a confidence issue too like well, what I said can't be right like uh, you didn't say it right and that goes back I love your point about switching the expert in a room yeah what's wrong with what you said that was phenomenal put that down you've got it and you put it in your own words which obviously shows that you understand that a lot deeper than me just telling you so I, I i agree with you totally and then that assessment piece for me is is uh, what i'm really working on bridging yeah i think yeah. i think that note-taking piece is one that i'm hearing teachers struggling with across the board um it's not that it's not possible it's that the, the kids really kind of double down on their resistance resistance if they're already being a little resistant they, they're just they lean into it like I just did all this work and now I have to do my own notes. There's kind of that line of thinking happening. Um, so we don't really have good answers other than trying out some of the models like Dean mentioned or graphic organizers, but then you have to watch the graphic organizers make sure they're not necessarily too leading or doing all the work for them. Or I, I, I'm interested to hear, um, hopefully Peter speak to this a little bit more when we see him. because I think we'll all be at the same workshop in, in coming up in June here. Um, that'd be a good question to, to dive into with him. Um, anything else, Sarah, that you're, that you uh, may, maybe isn't so much, uh, a challenge at this point, but was a challenge that you were able to work through that maybe others could benefit from hearing how you manage that this year? Well, I think I think at the beginning, I really thought that I needed these like exceptional open like low floor open middle high ceiling tasks like all the time. And yes, to some extent, that's yes, to some extent, that's true. And I do think that like there's lots of really good space for 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 that. But at the same time, um, the thing that I think was a huge transition for me was to find, OK, when I go from non-curricular, really good, rich math tasks to curricular math tasks, how do I maintain that momentum for problem solving while I'm doing curriculum? So that was a big thing. And that's where I really leaned into the the tools that I already have at my disposal, like a thin slicing of, for example, adding and subtracting integers is 
just textbook questions. Like that's just straight up what it is. It starts easy and it gets hard. You pick them very deliberately um, where you kind of make something incrementally harder um, and then a practice one after like that kind of thing. So at first I felt like I was really looking very hard for rich math tasks all the time. And eventually I came to understand that that's not not necessary. And same with even those application questions within our Math Makes Sense textbooks. Like I use those all the time. So instead of starting with me as the teacher saying, here's how you solve the thing, and then they go do the rote memory, or the uh, mimicking practice, so to speak. And then at the end, they're challenged with the the high-level thinking question. They start with the high-level thinking question, you give it to them, and then you show them later, or they've already shown themselves. So you just show them through their own work and you do your gallery walk and you consolidate from the bottom. Like it's, um, I felt this enormous pressure at first. And over the course of the year, I've started to learn that that isn't necessary. So that's been helpful. And then the other thing that I have had to work through is just trust, like trusting that I'm going to do it right. Or uh, actually, it's not even that because I'm not going to do it right. It's <laughs> trusting that students are learning really well and what I'm seeing them learning is really valuable and really valid. It can be a bit of a leap of faith to try something completely different than what you're used to. Um, and that has been important. It's been important to kind of work through that and say, like, you know, revisiting why I have transitioned to this and then revisiting and celebrating some of the successes that I've seen with my students. And then I will say, though, that assessment is part of that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I don't know. I was just going to say, it's like, I think the Philadelphia 76ers had that motto, trust the process, right? And that's something that you got to do when you do this, even when it seems a little like, what's going on here? You got to trust that. But it's just like the book, right? It's, you know, we have all these questions, but he does a really good job uh, in the FAQs to say, yeah, no, that's going to happen. And here's what's here's what we've noticed. And then when you do like a workshop, you get to experience that firsthand. And it's nice to know that, uh, you know, that trusted process and it will take care of itself. It's well researched. And, and, and sometimes it's like your knee jerk reaction is to like, oh, no, let's go back to where we were safe, you know, and, and that's where everybody's happy spot is. But you definitely get a lot more when you when you trust the process on this for sure totally well and it goes back to that idea of student studentic behaviors and teacher behavior or teachering behaviors right like i as a teacher feel more comfortable when i'm the expert in the room because i can control exactly what's happening and exactly what students are learning students sometimes feel more comfortable with that too however i mean Peter's Lily Doll's research speaks for, for itself in that sense, you know, in terms of what is it that I want my students to be doing? Well, I want them to be thinking. Um, sometimes that's uncomfortable for all of us, and that's a good thing when that happens. So, yeah, I love that. Trust the process. Yeah. One of the things you were you were about to get into, I think, Sarah, was assessment, and we had that on our list of things to ask you about. Um, do you... Do you want to speak to how you're handling assessment in your thinking classroom? Because you've kind of went all in from the start of the school year, which we don't have a lot of teachers that started that early. Um, and just be interested to hear your take on how that's going and, you know, you know what, what your next steps on that might look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So assessment, I think that assessment is so. Yeah, I think that assessment is really key to being able to trust the process, because if I can 
if I have data as a teacher that tells me that my students are on track for what I think they need to be know or for what they should be learning, then that helps me to say, oh, yes, okay, things are going well. Um, even though I'm a little uncomfortable and even though they might be a little bit uncomfortable, things are still progressing how they're supposed to be. So I think that assessment is really critical, not only because I'm accountable to it, but but also for me as like a, a check-in tool about, okay, is, how are we doing and do I need to revisit something Um again in the future, which, so I've tried a bunch of different things with assessment. Firstly, I've had to kind of redefine for myself what assessment looks like. Um, I think I used to think that assessment was just paper, pencil, individual work. And I do not believe that external to math. Like I've never really believed that. I'm a French immersion teacher. I teach language. Like we don't do a lot of, my assessment of their language is not paper and pencil. Can you, can you conjugate a verb so much as it is, can we have a conversation? And then I make, I give you feedback on your conversation skills, like those kinds of things. So in external to math, I would use um, conversations, products, and I would use all sorts of things as their assessment, but in math, I never did. Um, eventually, so, th so that was part of it is that I needed to redefine what exactly assessment looked like for me. So those conversations I have at Whitebirds, those are really important. Um, and so for me, finding a way to document those things was really important. Now, I know that Peter Lillydahl in his book talks about it, that, um, is that the rubric. Yes, the rubric with the checks and the ends and the S's and whatnot. Um, I'd love to hear how others are, are working with that because I have found that to be a little on the... I, I haven't been able to organize my papers well enough for that. That just hasn't quite worked yet for me. Um, but so first what I tried, the first thing I tried was that I... Um, okay, back up. When I plan for assessment, I always look at the outcome first and then I break it down into the indicators. Obviously, we take the indicators and say, okay, how am I going to structure this? This is the first thing that they're going to learn and then the second thing, you know, that kind of thing because they're not necessarily in order as they're written. Uh, and then Kyle, one time we were chatting about it and you gave me the really good advice to think through what does beginning look like? What does meeting or approaching and meeting and then exemplary look like? And sometimes exemplary, I'm of the opinion, isn't necessarily possible. But then sometimes students surprise me and then you're like, oh, wait, hold on. No, that's super exemplary. So um, I start by doing that, which feels like a lot of work kind of upfront, but it actually really helps me understand what my students are supposed to be learning and then helps me help them. Um, and so the first thing I tried was that I would put that on a piece of paper with the beginning approaching. And then I just had like a blank box underneath it. And then as I saw students do whatever, I would put their name down, like I'd write their name in the box. And I found that that didn't work. It worked great for like... 12 students because I would all of those students that got my attention most ended up on my rubric a lot. So I knew what those those 12 or whatever were doing really well. But then there were the other 12 that I just never visited because they because I I wasn't necessarily looking for who I hadn't seen yet. So that was one thing I tried for documenting anecdotal assessment that was a bit of a flop. Um then, uh, but then I moved to a more of a checklist sort of scenario. So I have all my students' names down the side. Then I often still will have that beginning approaching meeting and exemplary. But then it just reminds me if I don't have a check mark on any of those boxes for one of my students, that's a person I need to go have a conversation with. Um, 
So I use that as my anecdotal assessment or as my formative assessment quite or all the time. So I get data from my students most days, but then I would still do a kind of quiz kind of environment or show what you know. Um, at one point, this is the thing that worked best, but I still haven't found a way to make it like really time. It's less time consuming. Um, I would then have their whole rubric of their whole unit with each student had a rubric. And then just after class, I would go and put those check marks. I'd transfer them to their own rubrics, but it ended up being like multiple check marks. I was doing a lot of check marking um, or putting H's if you needed help, like those kinds of things. But the beautiful, the beautiful thing about it though, was that then when I gave them their independent show what you know, and they would have their five minutes or whatever to chat about their test and go through them saying some things together and then sit down and do it. I could see what their skill set was. And then I could go back to all my formative assessment that was already in this rubric and say, yep, that's exactly what I saw. Or I say, whoa, there's a big difference here. What is that difference? Um, and maybe for some student that different students, that difference is that like they had a really rough morning that morning. And so their test didn't show what they knew in class or that a paper pencil environment is more difficult for that student than just a conversation or who knows. Um, or just Great that they point. weren't able to do it independently and could only do it with their with their mm -hmm. team. In which case, that would tell me that gives me data as a teacher to be able to say, well, I know that you haven't quite met that outcome because you can't do it independently just yet. Kind of thing. Yeah. So, or maybe so when you, something different. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, Sarah, when you have those students who maybe had that off morning or there is that discrepancy, how do you handle that? Do you do you reevaluate them? Do you um, does it end there? How, what what happens at that point? Well, so I usually give my, oh, well, I always give my students their tests back. And so if they have something wrong, like I don't, I don't correct it. I just say, well, talk to your people. What did you do wrong? And then tell me what's wrong, like fix it. And then explain what you learned through this. Uh, and so then that comes back to me as well. So then I can relook at their, their tests and whatnot. Now, I don't do like a retest environment for my outcomes necessarily, but this has been one of those places where I've been trying to trust the process um, that I would have enough time to kind of spiral back to some things that I needed to. So, um, and I'm happy to report that it's worked so far. Just this week, I had an opportunity. My students were really not grasping. My grade sevens had trouble with dividing decimals by decimals. That was like a really big struggle. And I kept telling them, it's okay, we'll go back to it. It's no big deal. If you got approaching on your test, not a big deal. We're going to go back to it because I know that, like, I think all of them approached on their show what you know. So it was like, well, oh, something's wrong. We should try again. And I found an opportunity. Now we're doing circles. And so when we were solving for circumference or like solving for the diameter, they would have to divide the circumference by 3.14. And I gave them that task or they were doing that. And then I noticed that, well, once again, their dividing decimal skills were really weak. So then we went back and revisited it. And now lots of them feel much more comfortable with it. So I spent less time trying to catch kids up at lunch and get them retesting it, recesses and like those kinds of things this year. And that was challenging for me because it felt like that's what a good teacher should do. Like a good teacher should give them another opportunity right away. But in my mind, I was thinking, you know, but maybe it just needs to simmer for a little while and then we need to revisit it. And then when we revisit it, maybe it'll be more maybe it'll settle in better because things don't settle in all at once necessarily. And so if me just drilling you on your dividing decimals didn't work the first time around, like 
maybe it'll hit better the second time or something like that. And I mean, I have a sample size of one so far, but it seems to be okay. Like I, I, I feel good about it so far. <laughs> well, I, I think that's the power and any research that talks about spiraling back in the curriculum, that's what they're talking about, right? The more exposure um, students have to certain outcomes, topics, skills, whatever we're talking about, each time they see it, their depth of knowledge is going to grow a little bit. Whether or not they get all the way to meeting or, or not, they're still going to strengthen the, that what level of understanding they have, which I think is pretty cool. And we often see our primary teachers do a really good job of this. They do that all year, right? They're revisiting the topics all the time. And it starts to slow down once we hit, you know, grade four, five, six. And, and rarely do we have time to see it in, in classes like deans in high school. So um, I think there's a lesson to be learned there. That That's really good. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, I was just going to ask you, I work at a French immersion school, although I don't teach French, uh, but I know you do, and I know you're uh, conversing with your students. I'm, I'm assuming that you're doing the thinking cl uh, uh, classroom en français, if I said that correctly. Uh, mm -hmm. How has that not only strengthened their math skills, but how has that also uh, uh, reinforced their, um, their French skills? I mean, it's huge. I get to have conversations with my students in French all the time. So they just get an opportunity to speak all the time, speak together, speak to me. Um, so, I mean, as a language teacher, this is my best friend um, from a language perspective. And it's even small things like naming numbers. That's a big thing that um, my students struggle with. You know, so we'll see 750. I just am looking over at my whiteboard right there. One of my whiteboards says 750 centimeters cubed. Um, even that, just being able to say that out loud requires them to uh, to think about it in French. And so if we weren't doing it this way, they would never say those. They wouldn't say those words out loud. Like, how often do you say 750 centimeters cubed in your real life? Like, you just don't. Um, so the opportunities for language are huge. And opportunities for language from, like, not even just math language, but, like, social language or interpersonal language, the, like, no, I disagree with you for this reason, kinds of conversations. Those are really cool to hear in French. No, that's not just that's not to say that my students speak in math and French all the time, because they don't, obviously, because that's in French immersion that's always a thing is so sometimes I do find that students will get like really wrapped up in something and then they'll default to English um and so my the, they're always balancing that as a French immersion teacher so I don't want it to I don't want it to come across like my students always speak in French because they don't but we really do get more opportunities to speak in French and um try to encourage them to take those opportunities. Well, and if I think of like a traditional math class, right? And if you were teaching in a more traditional way, you'd be speaking French math to them all every time you taught math. But would they get a chance to speak it at all and converse with their classmates and and learn how to correct if they don't know how to say it in French, they would say it in English and just move on. Right. Like that, that would be the end of it. Um, whereas you have an opportunity to, you know, intervene and, and redirect them. I think that's pretty powerful. We just did an episode um, which we'll release shortly here. Um, hopefully it's out by the time we release this episode with Karen. She's our uh, multilingual consultant here in our school division talking about how it's such a benefit for students who are learning English. And I imagine it's very similar for students who are learning French. Um, so that's pretty, pretty neat to see. Ha has there been any barriers because of doing it in French? Like, has that been anything that's slowed you down or caused any issues, Sarah, or has it been just work smoothly? No, I, there haven't been any issues. 
I mean, definitely in middle years, French immersion, uh, like oral comprehension is not that big of a concern in terms of that kind of stuff. Like perhaps that would be something that I think might be challenging in the younger years for sure. If their, their language skills are still developing in a conversational kind of sense. But I will say though, that one of the things that I used to have to do a lot of was, and now that I think back on it, it's kind of funny, like assign operations, like mathematical operations to words that I know no longer need to do. It's just like not a thing that I have to do anymore. And I remember watching a student talk about, so the word par in French means by, and that can mean, that can mean you multiply, or sometimes it can mean you divide, like depending on the context. And I remember hearing some students going like, no, she said par, par means this or this, but which one is logical like that kind of thing. Um, whereas in previous years, I've had to make like a chart or we've made anchor charts that have been like, when you see the word pal it always means this but it doesn't always mean that so it has taken some of the it's actually just made the language easier like all of it has just become a bit easier from from a language perspective also the reading is not a problem as much anymore so in terms of like so i have some students with really low or with lower french reading skills um and reading math textbook questions is definitely in a grade six level or grade seven level is higher than their reading level so that would be a huge barrier and there was a lot of like i did a lot i used to do a lot of work on like how do you dissect a math question to figure out what it says and we don't have to do that anymore either that's just you know i give the math question and or i i say it orally and then they talk about it and then they figure out what it means and then they go and i thought that in a show what you know environment that would be a problem still but it still isn't because once again then they get their five minutes to i often will read the question out to them too if there's like a word problem um and then they talk about it and they go and that's that's awesome that's pretty great. And that reinforces some of the, you know, work we were doing in our school division prior to thinking classrooms, but aligns really well about just like, how do we get kids better at problem solving? They can do all the computations, they can do all these different things, but how do they solve word problems? Um, mm -hmm. And the number one thing we kept coming back to is if the context makes sense to kids, the math can come really naturally because the context and the language is usually the barrier. Um, and Peter talks about how text is a barrier, but in this case, it's the context can be as well. So um, I think allowing kids to have that conversation and, and debate what it's talking about and, and having some of those questions where you can interpret it a few different ways really allows for that rich understanding of what's going on. Um, so it's pretty cool to hear. I can um, definitely add to that as, uh, as I teach workplace and workplace is almost all word problems in a lot of ways. So uh, the conversations I heard definitely echo what you're saying and the kids are like, what does this mean? And then they're kind of figuring out what it means together, which is really powerful instead of most of them would just give up on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I love that the end part of those conversations ends up being and the number I think the number one thing that I said at the beginning of the year was is that logical uh, and then they would go well I don't know but now they ask themselves that question they look at the answer and they go wait a minute does this make sense and if the answer doesn't make sense then you've definitely done something wrong and then you need to try something different or so like you know the, the I love it. One of my favorite things that middle years students do is if they think the question's hard, they divide because they're like, yeah. that's the hardest. Yeah. That's the hardest operation. So the question is, seems hard. So I should divide, which <laughs> is so funny um, and often very not like it often doesn't really make sense. And so at the beginning of the year, I saw a lot of dividing. Well, the question is hard, so it must be division. Um, but then now it's hold on. 
what is the logical thing to be doing here? What do I need to do rather than like trying to guess at what a teacher wants based on, you know, tricky language or things like that. And they have a safe, comfortable environment to do that there where they can take a risk. And if they're wrong, then they can backtrack and they can, inter- so it's not that final. And that's why the vertical non-purpose, uh, the vertical non-permanent boards, I have to say that sometimes a few times, are really good because they can erase that really easy and then try their other new way of thinking and say, oh yeah, that makes more sense or it's more logical in that environment. And that's really the safe, that is, this allows students, it seems to be able to do exactly what you're talking about is like, hang on. Yeah, we can erase that. We can go down a different path and and see where we arrive. So that's what's so powerful. I, I think about this as well. Yeah, and and as you we were talking about the the students who um, just divide when they don't know what to do. If you haven't seen it, Robert Kaplinsky, he's the guy who kind of organizes Open Middle Online and all that stuff. He's got a video. I think it's just called the Shepherd Problem, and he asks grade eight students. I, I can't remember the exact problem. Something like there's 125 sheep and five shepherds herding them. How old is a shepherd or something like that? And they all just end up dividing. Um, <laughs> and it just goes on and on and on. It's a fantastic watch and really reinforces how like kids just they're looking for a shortcut to get through a problem instead of understanding it. So if we can shift that, that's really good. Um, but now now speaking about students, you obviously have, you know, 20 to 30, hopefully not more than 30 in your room. Um, but, you know, we know how it is out there. Uh, how have your students responded? You said there's a little resistance up front, but, you know, where are they at now? In general, they do a really good job. The amount of thinking that I see and the like really, really intentional thinking is really cool and their perseverance with tasks has increased dramatically um and their confidence that was the thing that was so i was really worried at the first parent teacher conference like i wasn't really sure what to expect because i teach math very differently than i have before and you know and some of my students have taught their siblings as well so like families kind of get a, a bit of an expectation about how you teach um and this is completely the opposite kind of thing and the i would say that the number one thing that my students said was we do math so differently a it's really fun because we get to use a whiteboard marker um but b i had no idea i could think that well like that kind of stuff where i used to think math was really hard but the way we do it here seems really it's all approachable and so that's been really cool and so some of that bias that I think my students come into math classes with is I'm a math student or I'm not a math student. It disrupts that or it's been really disruptive to that in such a positive way uh, to the point that actually, so I had a student who was gone for oh, a week or whatever. She was out and she came back and she'd missed the entirety of percentages. Um, and we were doing a show, What You Know, on the Monday when she got back and she was like, well, I missed it all. I was like, okay, well, why didn't you try it? And she's like, well, okay. And I was like, well, so you just show me what you know. And if you end up showing me that you don't know very much, that's no big deal. But who knows what you're going to find out. And she was like, okay, well, I guess I'll try. Um, and we did our sort of have a conversation with people before. And then she sat down and she was, she, she met the expectation. Like it was outrageous. She just thought it through. Um, and then she outlined her thinking and, and it was, it was so cool for me to just be like, wow, you just thought it through. And that was super neat. So I was watching her thinking. Now, obviously we have had another opportunity to go back and try it again. So then she got some more exposure to it and whatnot, which has been very important, but 
just for her own confidence, it was so cool for her to walk in and be like, well, I guess I'll just try it and see what happens. Um, you know, and she felt very empowered that day. And that, I think, has continued to define a little bit how she, who she is as a math student. And um, I think everyone is a math student. And this really allows everyone to be a math student and not to put themselves in a box that they don't need to be in. Yeah. And, and talk about like personifying the thinking is what we do and we don't know what to th- to do. Right. Like that's Peter talks about that all the time. Your 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 student just did that. Right. And they were able to to get through that without even having engaged in everything else. Um, so it just speaks to, you know, how you've, uh, you know, conditioned them to be able to approach problem problems in any task. They don't. It's pretty remarkable. Um, you mentioned parent teacher conferences. The other thing we wanted to ask you about was how have parents responded? Have you had resistance, excitement? Um, we often hear about teacher or parents, um, you know, wanting to see things that they did. Right. Because so they're familiar with it and can support them. What, what's the response been? Yeah, I would say largely it's been positive. I think because I've had my students, you know, my students are going home and, t- and talking about how they feel empowered in math. Um, and that's been good. Um, that isn't to say that there hasn't been any pushback. Um, some parents have have questioned the idea of I am not that helpful in terms of my helping. So um, I had a parent reach out and say, you know, my child tells me that you, when she asks you a question, you usually, well, it was, as she said, it was, you're not, you don't usually answer her questions. And so this was in a parent-teacher interview. And I turned to the child and was like, well, what do I say when I don't answer your question? And the kid rolled her eyes and goes, I believe in you. I know you can try. Or like, I know you can do it. Or or she'll smile and walk away kind of thing. And so this parent was like, oh, but how can you not answer their questions? It's like, well, because I know that they're going to learn better if they as I say, sort of tie a knot and untie it themselves. That's the thing that sticks. That's how they learn, um, even though it's frustrating. So at the but at the beginning, once again, my students' perseverance through difficult challenges was lower than it is now. So now when like they don't even ask anymore because they know that I'm not going to answer. Like I'm just going to say, I believe you can. I believe that you can solve this, and then I walk away or I say, Hmm, that's an interesting question, and then I walk away. Like those kinds of things, and so. Their strategies have changed. Their perseverance has changed. Their belief in themselves has changed. So I don't have any trouble with parents anymore from it. And, and like I say, mostly it was super positive, but there was some some hesitation, you know. I, and I think it's fair for a parent to be concerned if you're refusing to answer questions. But it's of not that course. you're you're ignoring, you're neglecting their child. Yeah. Right? There, there's Hear the per- whole story. <laughs> yeah, there's some purposeful things going on here. Yeah. Well, of course. And then if you as a student are feeling frustrated and you're saying, well, my teacher isn't helping me. um, I also I also understand that frustration as a student. That would be very frustrating. But as my students have built their capacity and built their perseverance and their strategies for 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 thinking and for for problem solving, um, all of that angst, so to speak, has kind of gone away. Like there's no trouble anymore. Well, speaking of uh, stakeholders, um, how has admin kind of uh, uh, accepted or not accepted uh, your new style of teaching there? And also, how has that have maybe reflected upon other teachers or maybe even division-wide? Um, what are some of those things that you're seeing with those stakeholders? 
Yeah. So I'm really lucky. My administrators are 100% on board. They are so supportive. And I actually came into a thinking classroom when I was working in a coaching role. And so I really got the opportunity to experiment. Um, and I was experimenting with a teacher as well, who also still works in Prairie Valley and is doing an awesome job of, of her thinking classroom. So having been given the freedom to trust the process has been a hugely important part of of my thinking classroom and of me becoming a teacher of thinking. And so my administrator, you know, I've actually been on like a summative assessment year in Prairie Valley and my administrator comes in and watches my math classes from time to time and is so excited about it uh, to the point that... Um, you know, he, I've been able to give a few workshops in our school about it for teachers, which has been really neat. Um, in Prairie Valley, we have something called communities of practice. And so we have a community of practice that does thinking classrooms. And then my administrator actually also um, gave me a beautiful opportunity to speak to all the administrators and senior staff at Prairie Valley School Division about the thinking classroom. And so that's been really helpful to the, just to know that there has been support from all levels of Prairie Valley has been critical for me being able to, to trust that, that they know that I'm doing what's best for my students, even though it sometimes looks a little bit different than what we've seen for lots of years. Um, And, and, you know, even to that. So I spoke to administrators in March about it and I had uh, 20 minutes, just a quick fire. Here's the basics of a thinking classroom. And then I had a number of administrators, even one today, reach out to me to say, hey, can I borrow your slides? Because I really want to talk to my teachers about this too. So I think that um, it's a movement that's catching on uh, in such a, in a really good and contagious way. You know, I even I gave the book to one of my coworkers a couple of weeks ago, and we've been chatting about it all year. And she's been starting to implement some thinking classroom stuff, but didn't have access to the book. And I gave it to her. I was like, "Well, you should read it tonight." And she's like, "Well, I'm not gonna read it tonight." And then that night, I got a text message. She's like, "So I started reading it. And I'm on chapter three. It's excellent." Uh, <laughs> from my experience, once people have heard about the thinking classroom, have seen the thinking classroom, it's it's undeniable that this is what learning is supposed to be. Yeah, I, I think I think we're seeing that in our school division too, um, and, and I think it speaks to a lot that this is this excitement is really taken off and it's contagious, like you said, in the midst of a global pandemic with restrictions that are making it even more difficult. But still, we're persevering, and teachers are excited and finding ways to do this. Um, I, you know, I, I can't help but wonder what this would be like had we not had COVID come at this exact time and we could have dove right in and really got into things. But you know, that's a thought for another day, and maybe we'll find out what that looks like next year. Although I I do think that COVID is you know, people had to realize that what is the most important thing for the thing is to build a relationship with the kids. So there might have been actually COVID might have even helped in some ways. You know, people realize that, you know, you just can't cover your curriculum. You got to kind of figure out what you really want to teach and, and get at it. And the thinking classroom does that. It helps you like when you pick your task, you're doing that because if they could catch on to this, then the rest of the outcomes kind of fall into place. So maybe there's some debate that uh, there's yeah. some silver lining with the COVID too. No, you're absolutely right. You can look at it both ways for sure. <laughs> um, so Sarah, that's the you, thinking classroom in a nutshell, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Sarah, you've had some some time to play with thinking classroom. You've had time to share thinking classrooms. You've worked as a coach with thinking classrooms. I'm thinking about teachers who are maybe hesitant to jump into thinking classrooms and someone who, you know, has heard about it, maybe even seen a colleague down the hallway do it. What would you say to that person who's, you know, debating whether this is something they want to pursue or not? 
I would say dive in. It is so much fun. But be prepared. Be prepared to really have to remind yourself and take your, take a step back about what it is that you believe your job is as a teacher. So, you know, um, Dean, you just said, like, our job isn't to cover curriculum. It's to, um, the way that I kind of put it is, I facilitate student learning of curriculum. And as a math teacher before, I was not a facilitator of learning. I was a knower of things that taught that and and honestly I was not the I was not a very good math teacher. I always struggled with it. Um so but this has helped me find my identity as a math teacher in a really positive way. So even if you're like I'm not a very good math teacher, I I struggle with math. That is what I felt as a math teacher. I never felt like I was effective. I never felt like yeah it it, it just didn't feel quite right for me. And and now it does. Now, that's not to say that it isn't still without its learning opportunities all the time, but I would say dive in. I would also say try and get a buddy because having a person to be like, man, this didn't work is super important. And it's even like little things because I'm learning different ways of doing math through being with my students as well. Um, and so it's for small things like every non-curricular problem I did when I started, I did with another person because I was like, oh, well, I feel like I felt like I needed to know the answers. Now I trust that I don't. And my students could not care less if I know the answer to a non-curricular problem because they just like don't because they know that it doesn't matter. Eventually we'll come to it together or we'll debate about what is the right answer. Um, you know, are there two defensible answers to this problem? Like those kinds of things. But having a buddy is really helpful because then you can bounce off those ideas, but then you can also reassure each other that some of the challenges you're going to encounter are what other people encounter, or they might have solutions that you haven't thought about. Um, those would be my, that's my recommendations. Do it with a pal. <laughs> nice. So is there like, this has been fantastic. Is there something that uh, you wanted to share with us that maybe we haven't asked yet? They're like, oh, by the way, uh, this is a really good point or think of this or something from the book or, or something you heard a kid say maybe. I kind of did want to circle back though. I don't know yeah. if this is allowed. Please do. Can we Definitely. circle That's back to consolidation? Because I, you know, yeah. Dean, I wanted to exactly see exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Learning from you about how you do consolidation. I, you know, I find my students are less engaged in consolidation. Um, and I, I think I, uh, well, sometimes I think I do a good job of picking out good things to talk about. Like I try and circle good, good work or interesting work, but then I also try and circle interesting mistakes and we talk about mistakes, um, which I think is important. I think it's super important to highlight good mistakes. And, and at first it was like, oh, you're showing my, my mistake. Like, yeah, this is an awesome mistake and we need to talk yeah. about why this is such a good mistake. And that's helped redefine what mistakes mean. Um slowly over time um and i mean I'd, i maybe you'd have to ask my students but i don't think they're offended when we talk about big mistakes because or good mistakes because nobody nobody knows whose work is what anyway but how do you how does consolidation go for you well i, I think we have similar stories like and again sometimes at high school guys you know once they're once they go down they've been standing for such a long time they don't like oh now we gotta move around so they got to get past themselves a little bit. And I really like, I was talking to Cal too. I'm, uh, this might actually prolong my uh, teaching career. Cause I want to see, you know, like groups of students that you have when they come to high school and are, are, you know, kind of have this expertise and, and knowledge and realize what it's about. I 
think the consolidation will work a, a lot better. But right now, you know, the students are like, you know, can we sit down? Can we do that? So, you know, but when I do do it and I put the things on, they're not bad. Like we go through, but I don't see them writing down as many notes as I, I would like. You know, I do get them to say, well, you know, pull out your phones and take pictures, you know, of the work and then you can revisit and that. Um, I also use technology sometimes. Uh, like we'll use something like GoFormative and they'll show their work on there. And then sometimes they'll respond to that because they're not at their whiteboard. So I have pictures of their work and I put it up and I can hide their names and I can scrabble. So because sometimes people still know what station people were at and, and that type of thing too. So sometimes when I use uh, some different uh, techniques and using technology, that's kind of work to consolidate. And you can really celebrate the mistakes there a little bit more because it really gets anonymous and then students really are, are kind of protected on that. But I, yeah, I just find that sometimes uh, high school students are getting them to do a task can be tough enough as it is and then trying to get them to consolidate uh, after years of being told sit down here's uh, what you should mimic and I want this back on the test the, the consolidation thing is like well, why didn't you just give us the notes or why didn't you just tell us that like why do we have to do that right so there's definitely a mindset that uh, is well established and there's a lot of work to be done to um, disrupt it I really like that uh, word uh, in many ways and this is a definitely a good word to use uh, for the mindset that a lot of students have coming into class so it's been a struggle but it's been a good struggle and stories like yours and what you're saying uh, really inspire me and that's why I love doing these conversations is that I'm like I mean, I'm nodding my head a lot and, and I'm like okay yeah you know so I really appreciate uh, all the hard and good work that you and your students are doing and sharing that with us because it gives me a lot of hope <laughs> and one thing to add to maybe consolidation as I think about it, and I, I have a very different experience with consolidation, Sarah, because I go into like classrooms that I don't know the kids. Um, they don't know me and we have an hour and then I've got to do it. So time, I'm always fighting time, right? Uh-huh. Um, if the task goes longer than I want, that means less time to try to consolidate. So um, that's always a tricky balance that I'm trying to strike. And I feel like, you know, in your context, you have a group of kids all day. You maybe can flex your schedule to make that work as you need. Um, one of the things that works really well well, and, and I stole this directly from watching Peter in his workshop, was just the groups whose work you're, you've circled and are going to share, they're not allowed to talk about their work. Um, other groups, what did they do? You, you ask them, what did this group do? What did they try to attempt here? What mistake was made? What, you know, all those different questions that you could probe and prompt. And the first few times you need to do this, and every single time I do this with a group of kids, like you got to have your wait time game on because it's like, would they teach us seven seconds is the ideal wait time you're looking at? Like, like almost a minute sometimes. And once they realize you're not leaving until somebody peps up, oh, I think they did this. Then then you start to get this conversation or I do like a turn and talk to who's beside you. What did they do? Right. And that really makes them look at that consolidation work, that, that work that we're trying to dissect at a deeper level, because if they're just waiting for you to tell them what this group did, then, yeah, I guess like dean students, why didn't you just tell us that to start with? Right. So if we can get them to pull it out in a deeper way, then it's really good. And I've also tried it where I've had the group whose work it is just presented to the class, but no one's really paying attention at that point. So 
I don't know if you've tried that, but that's something that I would encourage you to experiment with um, if you haven't. And anyone out there who's struggling with consolidation, that was a pretty powerful piece. But you're going to need to budget probably twice, if not three times as much time as you would have initially thought to do that. And you want to be really picky about the examples you're doing because and know the students whose work you're looking at, because um, if students aren't in that don't feel totally safe in that space quite yet, then you've got a, you might have another situation you got to be dealing with after after the fact. So that's something that comes to mind. Good points. Yeah, I just wrote down on my paper, be less helpful. It always comes down to that. <laughs> it kind of does, it? Yeah. yeah. Less is more. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I did just think of one thing too, though. I teach a split grade classroom mm-hmm. and sometimes that can be a really big barrier. And that was something that I wasn't sure how to juggle at the beginning of the year either. But I have taught things altogether for the most part. Now, as I'm getting better at it, I am actually able to do two tasks at once now, sometimes. So I'll have my sixes do one task and my sevens do one task. Like, so for example, we're doing circles with grade sevens right now. We're doing volume with grade sixes right now. Those don't cross over in the curriculum in the same way that some of the other things do but it's one of those trust the process things that you know peter lillijal talks about if everybody does everything then all of their skills get better all the time and that is so true you know my grade sixes or my grade sevens have benefited from going back and doing a little bit of work with our grade six stuff and then my grade sixes have benefited from just thinking at a grade seven level i don't assess them on those things um i definitely only assess what the 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 curricular outcomes for that grade but finding the overlap between it and then diving into it has been really it has been successful like without a doubt it's funny that you mentioned that because recently I was talking to two grade seven and eight split grade teachers who historically would have traded their students. All the grade sevens would go to one, all the grade eights would go to another. We see that everywhere. It's a common practice. Um, and during COVID, they were told they weren't allowed to do that. So they they decided to go split. Um, and what they ended up doing in seven and eight is they teach every outcome in seven and eight to both their sevens and eights. They just don't report on, you know, the, the wrong grade. And they said they would never go back because the grade eights are benefiting so much from that review. And in grade seven and eights specifically in, in like a lot of grades, you know, you're doing fraction, addition and subtraction, and then you go into fraction, multiplication and division and fraction, you know, order of operations. Why wouldn't you kind of do those all kind of together if you could? Um, And so the sevens benefit from seeing where things are going and the eights benefit from that extra review and everyone kind of comes out further ahead than they were. And then the other reality, too, and I'm sure it's the same in your classroom, Sarah, is your grade sevens. Not every single one of them got everything in grade six. So that's a real big benefit of a split grade math class. Um, especially when you're teaching in this format, which allows kids to really um, get deeper into things, and especially if they didn't quite get it the first time. So I, I appreciate you mentioning that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good Definitely. Point. Well, and not to mention even just the like basic math skills that happen over the course of working and engaging in rich math tasks in general. You know, so say we're working on multiplying and and dividing fractions we're still then like we're still reviewing the concept of equivalent fractions we're also still reviewing multiplying and dividing so even if like your grade sevens in that grade seven eight split even if they're not really catching on to the multiplying and dividing fractions they are still working at things that they otherwise wouldn't get an opportunity to work on that are basic math skills you know you know, another 
piece of that is that it'll be interesting to see when your sixes move to seven and you get new sixes in. So your sevens would have experienced the thinking classroom and your sixes. It'll be interesting to get, if you get that next year, it'd be interesting to see that dichotomy and how will your sevens step up and help your sixes. Well, here's what we did last year. Yeah, it's okay. And will it move things faster and quicker? It, or will you have like, these guys are way over here and these guys are down here and you have this big gap, you know, because when guys figure know what they're doing already and other guys don't, it'll be, do you think, do you know what you're teaching next year or how do you think that might play out? Yeah, I'm actually moving schools, so I won't oh. get that opportunity. But now that you've said it, that makes me kind of sad that I won't. Um, <laughs> I am getting a group of thinkers actually at my new school. I'm moving to a high school next year and I know that the, the teacher that's had them previously is a she and I run our community of practice together on thinking classrooms. So I'm, I'm really interested to see what um, a group of thinkers, how a group of thinkers is going to be able to adapt in the same, in a different, like, cause I've never had that before. So that's kind of curious. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited about that. And I'm interested to see how it applies in high school as well. Let me, let me know. <laughs> yeah. I'd be, I'd, I'd, I'm, I'm still learning a lot for this for sure. I wish I could fast forward five years and just see what, like when my grade sevens right now are in your grade 12 class, like how they would be. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds over the next few years. Um, just being cognizant of everyone's time because we've been talking for quite a while. Um, Sarah, is there anything last last minute here that you want to add before we wrap things up for the day? Or do you have a Twitter or something people can reach yeah. out to you or that type of thing? Um. Yeah. I mean, I do have Twitter. I, I, I don't go on Twitter as much as I should. I know that math chats happen on Twitter, which is unfortunate. But I love mostly, I love thinking classrooms. I love what it's done for my students. I love how it's impacted my role as a teacher. Um, so I highly recommend it. I'm always down to have nerdy math chats with people. So if anybody ever wanted to um, reach out and chat, I, uh, yeah, always available. <laughs> That sounds great. Okay, well, thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Dean. Uh, we'll we'll cut it off there for today, and I'm sure we'll be hitting you up again next year, Sarah, to talk more about the, maybe the differences between middle years and high school. That might be a really interesting conversation. So thanks again, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Well, thanks, guys, for having me. It's been fun. You've been listening to RCSD Thanks with your hosts, Kyle and Dean. Stay tuned for more conversations on the Thinking Classroom and other mathematical best practices. Until next time. Keep those thinking caps on.